I'm reading from the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Many years ago, I was in the city of Chicago and had been preaching that Sunday at the Moody Memorial Church. And I was now at the front of the church waiting for my friend to take me to my residence when I was introduced to a remarkable woman. I've met many of the leaders of this generation, have shared platforms with them and conferences with them. And I would say I would put this woman as far as a woman of God and a woman of faith and a woman of power with the first half dozen in my experience. Very short in stature, small woman, about five foot two high. And she was 80 years old when I was introduced to her there on that corner of a windy street in Chicago. She had dancing eyes. And she was very excited. She was the founder and director of the Door of Hope Mission in Shanghai, China, for 50-odd years. Communists had come in, had taken over. She was evacuated to the States. She'd been here a couple of years, and now the Lord had called her again to a similar work in Taipei. And there she was, as eager as a teenage schoolgirl, enthusiastic because she was about to go to Los Angeles and sail for Formosa. It was some years later that the Southern Baptists on Formosa invited my wife and I to go to that island and to have ministry in their churches and in their seminary and a conference. And I got to know Miss Dieterle in a very, very intimate way. There was one key to her remarkable life, just one. And it was this. Everything that came to her, it did not matter what it was, she would say, government upon your shoulder, Lord. Anything. I don't, I cannot vouch for the truth of this, but uh, one of the missionaries said he saw her in a pedicab one day and it went into a ditch and she crawled out and said, government upon your shoulder, Lord. But it gives us some idea of the consistency of her attitude to place everything in the Lord's hands immediately. And she did it by saying the government upon his shoulder.
being German, she was typically German, and Germans are very thorough. They built a Volkswagen, and uh, they did not alter the shape, the styling of that Volkswagen for 40 years and more. But they kept on improving what was inside the car. And this was typical of Miss Dieterle. When she was a young teenager, she had come to the realization that this life she was to live had to be a life of faith. And so when she was reading, particularly verse 6, she came to a conclusion that she would take this as her life verse. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now, government speaks of three things. It speaks of authority, responsibility, and the ordering of every detail. I want to mention these three things again. It speaks of authority, responsibility, and the ordering of every detail. The President of the United States has great authority, but he has great responsibility. And so when she was placing the government upon the Lord's shoulders, she was saying, now, Lord, the government of this situation is yours. The authority is yours, but the responsibility is also yours. And the ordering of every detail. And also, she had learned not to take that authority or responsibility or ordering of the detail back to herself and help the Lord. No. She had developed this life, this life of amazing faith. And she stayed with it all her days. She was, during the Japanese occupation of Shanghai, in many ways, shut up to the Lord as never before, because all of her support was cut off from the United States, a little trickled in from Germany. But one of her assistants came to her one day and said, Miss Dieterle, uh, we don't have more than a few bars of soap left, and of course we have these 500 orphan girls. What are we going to do about it? Where can we get soap? Well, Miss Dieterle said, get all the girls together and all the staff together, and we're going to wait upon the Lord. We're going to put the government on his shoulders for soap. So they gathered the girls and the staff into the meeting place, and uh, Miss Dieterle said in a very simple way, now, Lord, we're placing the government upon your shoulder. This is an emergency. This is a crisis. And the responsibility is yours to provide soap. Just as simple as that. I once was identified with Miss Dieterle in a conference in the United States, and she had with her her colleague, a Miss Green. And they used to sing a little hymn whenever they were confronted with a crisis. And it was always the same little hymn. Very simple hymn. There's nothing too hard for thee, dear Lord, there's nothing too hard for thee. For thine is all the love and power. There's nothing too hard for thee. So I'm trusting alone in thee, dear Lord. I'm trusting alone in thee. 
for thine is all the love and power I'm trusting alone in thee. Now, we, we almost smile as we think of the simplicity of it, but this was the manifestation of that faith within the woman. Very simple, but very powerful, because she had it down to the irreducible minimum. What was she trusting in the fact that all the love and all the power was his? So she was going to trust alone in him, nobody else, nothing else but him. And this was the key to her wonderful life. So there they were, waiting upon the Lord for soap. One of her staff came to her while she was leading the meeting. They were singing hymns and praying. And uh, said, Miss Dieterle, uh, there is a, a Chinese gentleman at the door and he would like to talk with you about our ministry here. So she went to this gentleman and showed him around and um, told him something of the work and when she concluded, he said, well, Miss Dieterle, this is a very wonderful work, and I would like to be able to help you, but you see, the Japanese have us all tied up. We can't spend any money without the permission of the authorities, and so I can't give you any money. But, he said, I am a soap merchant, and maybe I can help you with soap. And that man provided soap for them for the rest of the Japanese occupation. So Miss Dieterle simply took that uh, Chinese brother with her back to the meeting place where they were praying. And on the platform, she said, the Lord has sent his raven. And he's going to provide soap for us for the, Japan the duration of the Japanese occupation. You see, the simplicity and the tenacity and the consistency of her simple faith was rewarded. And this was consistent in her experience. So I learned a great lesson from her, and of course I incorporated it into my own life, and have ever since. When my wife and I had finished our second period in Japan, and we were due after five years for furlough, we had arranged to go to the States, but we hadn't arranged for accommodation until two months before we were leaving. And so I asked some missionaries, did they know of anywhere where we could stay in the United States? And they said, well, there is a place in Ventnor, New Jersey, just south of Atlantic City, and they have some very nice apartments there for missionaries, but I think you have to book about two years ahead. They gave us the address and the telephone number, and we called, and the lady in charge said to me, well, Mr. Carroll, it's most unusual, just a few days ago, we're always full, uh, but this couple that uh, were coming have cancelled out, and we can, we can give you an apartment. So my wife and I were about to leave for Germany. I had to undergo surgery in Germany, we had prayed where the surgery was to take place, and uh, the Lord said Germany, so we knew some very precious Christians in Germany, and so we, we flew, for, flew to Germany. But before departing, we noticed that our youngest daughter, Anna, had developed a low-grade fever, and we took her to the local Japanese doctor, and he examined her and said, well, I don't, I don't really know what is wrong and what's causing the fever. Well, in Germany, we went to a local GP who was recommended to us as a very able diagnostician 
And uh, he examined Anna and he said, well, I don't, I don't know either. He said, I, I, I don't know what's causing this problem. So I became concerned and I said to my wife, I want you to take her to Tübingen, to the big medical center in Tübingen, and ask for the consultant and that you'll have a thorough examination as to what's causing this fever. Well, my wife took, took her to Tübingen, saw the consultant, and the consultant said, I'm very sorry, I really don't know. Well, we arrived in Ventnor, and uh, next door to the apartments was this doctor who was very well thought of, and so we thought we would take Anna to this doctor and see what he said. So he examined Anna, and he said to me, you must take this child immediately to the children's hospital in Philadelphia. I said, why, doctor? He said, I'm afraid what is happening in this little body is very, very serious. So you must go immediately to the children's hospital. So I borrowed a car and drove to the children's hospital about 60 miles away and uh, saw a doctor and he examined Anna and he said, well, I think that this little girl almost certainly has a Wilms tumor. I said, well, what is a Wilms tumor? He said, well, it can be lethal. He just told me straight out. He said it can be lethal. It's a malignant cancer. And he said, I want you to sign this paper here um, because we can't do a thing for, for your daughter until you give us permission. I said, well, I have a friend in the city of Savannah and he was on the cancer board of Georgia for some time, so I'll call him if you don't mind and, and see what he says. So I called my friend and I explained the position to him and I said, uh, Harry, this uh, little Anna almost certainly has a Wilms tumor. What is a Wilms tumor? Well, he explained in more detail just what it was. I said, now they want me to sign a paper here and give them permission to uh, care for this little girl. He said, well, I believe there are only two hospitals in all the world that can really handle this. One is children's in Boston, and the other is children's in Philadelphia. He said, and what's more, the world's leading authority on world's tumors is the surgeon in charge at Philadelphia Hospital. He travels the whole world lecturing on world's tumors. He said, so obviously the Lord has put you right on the doorstep of the hospital in all the world that could handle this, in the way it should be handled. Well, ever before we arrived in Ventnor, we had simply, my wife and I had simply, as we always did in any emergency, in any, not the little details like Miss Dieterle, but if anything demanded a definite act of faith, we would do that. We would put the government on the Lord's shoulders. We've always done that since then. And so we placed the government on the Lord's shoulders and then we told him he was responsible for the ordering of every detail. And he was ordering them. <laughs> he was ordering the details. Not only was he, did he have the authority and the responsibility, but the details were there. The detail in the provision of, the, of that uh, apartment in Ventnor and there, very close to the hospital in all the world that could handle this tumor in this little four-year-old girl. 
So we had to go to Ventnor. We had to go to Philadelphia. A friend in Philadelphia that I administered to some years previous uh, heard that we were coming and she called me and said, well, I have an apartment here in Philadelphia that I just keep vacant for missionaries coming through. Uh, there is nobody in it at the moment. You can have it for as long as you like. So we moved into this very gracious, luxurious apartment right in the city and reasonably close to the hospital. Well, we conferred with the doctor and preparation was made for Anna to be operated on. The Wilms tumor was in, in actually the kidney was inside the tumor. The tumor was that large that uh, it begins in the in the kidney, and, but it was a very large one, and so uh, the operation was to take place. And I said to the doctor, uh, Doctor, Anna is going to be very uncomfortable and needy during the first few days of the surgery. Uh, can we arrange for nurses round the clock? And he said, Mr. Cow, that is impossible. Uh, even the ward where Anna will be after the surgery, is, it was short short of nurses. There's a shortage of nurses. And there's no way that uh, you could arrange or we could arrange for a nurse to be with her, a private nurse. So I returned to the apartment and I got down on my knees and I, I said, Lord, the government's on your shoulder. This is an impossible situation, but the authority is yours and the responsibility is yours. And so I was directed to pray. And I had a friend who was the director of the China Inland Mission in Germantown. And uh, so I, I, I asked, I called and asked for my friend. Was he there? No, but his assistant was, and I knew his assistant also. So I said to him, Arthur, and I explained the situation, Anna's going to be operated on serious surgery. We need, if possible, one nurse, but preferably more than one nurse to be with around the clock for a day or two. And do you know any nurses in Philadelphia that could help? Well, I'll never forget what he said. He said, we are in an orientation at the moment and we have eight nurses. And so Anna had a Christian nurse, a consecrated Christian nurse, by her bedside 24 hours a day for several days. So what do we find as, as we really put the government upon his shoulder? What do we find? And we really leave it all with him, just trusting him, just looking to him. He's going to do wonderful things, because that's the next word. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful. The psalmist said, He only doeth wondrous things. So it is, of course, one thing to put the government on his shoulder and then you can step back. And what is your attitude now? Is your attitude one of triumphant faith? I often say consistently to the students here at our institute, think victory, keep thinking victory. Don't think defeat. Keep thinking victory. All things are possible to God, all things are possible to him, the believer. But you must think victory. Don't even countenance for one moment defeat. But you must never anticipate what the Lord is going to do. 
you put the government upon his shoulder and you may be tempted to think, well, I know exactly what he's going to do. Well, you don't. You may think you do, and he may do what you're thinking he's going to do, but he may not do it. Because we were rejoicing, the surgery was successful, and I used to take Anna, well, I took her for two visits to the hospital for chemotherapy, and then the Lord spoke very, very definitely to me that she was not to have any more chemotherapy. Now, I didn't discuss this with anybody. I didn't uh, have any information as to the dangers of chemotherapy, but the Lord said no more chemotherapy. You say, the Lord said, yes, of course, I'm one of his sheep, and he says, my sheep hear my voice. That's very simple. I expect to hear his voice. Do you? You should. He said very, very clearly, no more chemotherapy. So the doctors were very gracious in the hospital, and I explained what I've been praying, and, and, and as far as I'm concerned, as a father, I feel I have this responsibility to tell you that uh, no more chemotherapy. Well, of course, they, they did their very, very best to dissuade me. But I had, I believe, the word from the Lord, and so no more chemotherapy. Well, Anna today is uh, a very joyous 35-year-old mother. I have another friend whose wife, as I said on one occasion, died by inches of cancer. And he was in contact with many men, but he finally went to one of the top men, it would seem, in that part of the country, had to travel a long distance. And he spoke to him about Anna. And he said, well, her father did the right thing. Because in those days, we used five times the amount of chemo that we use now. And she would have died if that treatment would have been continued. So the Lord did a wonderful thing. He saved her life. He wanted Anna to live. He wanted Anna to glorify his name on this earth. So he spoke because the government was upon his shoulder and he did a wonderful thing. So when you put the government on his shoulder, you must be ready to obey, to do what he tells you to do, even though nobody may understand what you're doing. But you must be obedient. You must obey him. The authority is his now. The authority is not yours, it's his. And it is imperative any time never to lean to your own understanding because that's forbidden in Scripture. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. When Augustine's mother prayed fervently for her son to be saved, what happened? He went to one of the most sinful cities in the world and fell deeply into sin. But it was there the Lord saved him. There the Lord saved him. But one thing we can be certain of, that the Lord, when we put the government upon his shoulder, he is always previous. He's always working out the details in advance. He's always previous. He did that with the apartment in Ventnor. He did that with the hospital there in Philadelphia. He did that because they knew more about Wilms tumors than any other hospital in all the world. He's always previous. 
He's a wonderful Lord. So our part is to what? The act of faith is to put the government upon his shoulder before anything else, before thinking about the situation, to put the government upon his shoulder and the responsibility is his now, the authority, because the authority is his, and the ordering of every detail. But sometimes, in fact many times in my own experience, I've had to do things that practically nobody agreed with, but finally, because I believe the Lord had led us in a certain direction, certainly when we came here to Greenville from Japan, that it was the will of God, against all the circumstances, and after several years it was proven that it was the will of God. Anna recovered and we were making ready to return to Japan. But during the time here in the States I'd been ministering in various cities and every time I came to Greenville, South Carolina, it seemed I had an unusual liberty and certain circumstances uh, convinced me that I had to begin to pray about the possibility of having a Bible teaching center in the city. And it was very, very strong. From a human viewpoint, it just didn't make sense. It had taken us 10 years to dig ditches in the Far East. And at the invitation of missionary societies, I'd been ministering to missionaries in countries from as far west as India to as far east as Korea and then in Japan and the Philippines and Indonesia for 10 years. And it was a very satisfying ministry because if you touch uh, the lives of 200 missionaries, you're touching several thousand to whom they will go back and minister to. And I was touching literally thousands of lives, thousands of missionaries. Definitely in the will of God. But it persisted that there could be a ministry Bible teaching center in Greenville. So after prayer, I said to my wife, we'll place this before the Lord. And we did. And I said, Lord, now, if you want us to go to Greenville and have a Bible teaching ministry in Greenville, the center, then I want you to give us several acres of land within 10 minutes of the center of the city in a country setting. And if you don't give us this land by the 1st of April, then we will return to Japan. This was about mid-February. So we took out a map, red map, and uh, the first place we came to is where the Institute is now. And I said to my wife, I said, now this would be an ideal place uh, to have, to have a, a Bible teaching center. And she said, yes, it was, it was ideal. And so we asked, who is the man that owns this property? And they said, well, he's a multimillionaire. He's in his 80s. He just runs horses up there. Uh, there were <clears throat> 40 acres involved. And uh, there's a stone house that he takes his grandchildren to every weekend. 
He said, there's no way that he, he'd sell that land. So I said, we'll go and ask him. And they went and they asked him. And he said, no. He said, it's ridiculous. I don't need the money. I don't want it. And every weekend, he said, that's, I look forward to every weekend to spend it there with my grandchildren. So we thought this door was closed. So we went and looked all over the, the, the city of Greenville, but came back again to this same place. So I said to my friends, will you, will you not go and, and speak to him again? And they said, no, it's not the slightest use. He doesn't need money. He's multimillionaire. It's where he takes his grandchildren every weekend. This is impossible. So I said, well, ask him anyway. Of course, we didn't have any money. But if the authority and responsibility is the Lord's, he'll take care of that. He never fails. If he's going to give us the land, he's going to give it to us. He's going to pay for it. Well, they went back. No, no way. So my wife and I returned to Asheville where we were staying. And I said to her, well, um, the Lord's going to have to give us that land. And he's just going to have to tell us to come down and make arrangements for us. But we're not going back to Greenville. Well, a telephone call came. I want you to come down today. It's a friend who had been contacted by another friend. And uh, I want to meet you, and uh, I want to take you to the home of the uh, First Baptist Church, pastor of the First Baptist Church. So I came down, and we went to the uh, First Baptist Church. And there, to my surprise, I saw a friend that I knew very well. What had happened was this man was in the study with his pastor and he said to the pastor, he said, there is a, there's a person, he, he wants to, uh, to buy that land of mine up there. And he said, I have no intention of selling to anybody. He said, but he, there's a sort of persistence about it. And, and as far as I know, he was in Japan, ministering out there in Japan. And do you know anybody that would know this man in his ministry in Japan? And so he gave them my name to the pastor and, the pastor said, well, uh, my wife's best friend is in the kitchen with her, and she was a missionary in China, and, and she, she, might, uh, she might have heard of this man. When we were on Formosa for that six months of ministry with the Southern Baptists, I lived in the home of uh, Miss Franks and Miss Smith. And there, in that kitchen, at the absolute optimum moment was Miss Franks. And so when they inquired as to whether or not Miss Franks had ever heard of me, she says, oh yes, he's a close personal friend of mine. We were six months together in Formosa, and by the time she finished with that dear old gentleman, I don't know what she said, but he was very eager to sell us the land. And that's why we're here today. You see, the government was upon his shoulder to, to get this land. This is impossible. The man doesn't need money. He doesn't want money. He loves going there with his grandchildren every weekend. And yet he sold it. So let me say again, he wants to do wonderful things. He, want, he only do it 
wondrous things. I endeavoured in my quiet times or times alone with, with my children to develop this matter of faith and this matter of acceptance of the circumstances and knowing that the Lord always does wonderful things and to trust him to do that. But sometimes he'll do it in a way that we don't expect. And one of our favorite stories was the story of Daniel. Now, the children were quite small. But there's one thing about children. You can tell them a story once, and if they, if they really, really like it, uh, then you can tell it to them a dozen times. And, and they always like the story of Daniel. And I would uh, bring them to the point where Daniel is being thrown into the den of lions and say, oh, children, I can't go on, I can't go on. This is too sad. Dear Daniel, he so loved the Lord. Look what's going to happen to him. You think the Lord would have kept him out of that den of lions and just about to be thrown in? Oh, don't, Daddy, go on, go on, go on, go on. I said, well, well why shall I go on? He said, well, it says God is with him. God is with him. Yeah, but children, he's going to be thrown. It doesn't matter, Daddy, go on. So I would go on, and, of course, Daniel's thrown into, into the den of lions and... Uh, God did a wonderful thing. He didn't save him from the lions. He saved him with the lions. Didn't save him out of the den. He saved him in the den. That's more wonderful. If uh, the Lord would have given us any say, we would have said, well, Lord, don't, don't put him in that den. He's finished. Oh, yes, the Lord does often put a person in a den that he might prove his faithfulness. Haven't you ever been in a den with lions. And in that den, you were there in the den with the lions, but the Lord was with you there too. He was with you. There was a Chinese brother who was incarcerated by the communists and they put him in this cell. And one morning, the warden said to him, who was with you in the cell last night? He said, there's nobody with me here in this cell. They said, oh, yes, there was. We saw him dressed in white. Who was it? The Lord only does wondrous things. Simply puts the government upon his shoulder. The authority is his. The responsibility is his. And the ordering of every detail is his. And I could keep you here. For hours, I'm serious, I could keep you here for hours telling you how the Lord has done wonderful things. When we were here for three years, the word of the Lord came, you must have a Bible school. So I went to the board and I said, I believe the Lord is, is having, wants us to have a Bible school. Well, they weren't so sure of that because that was going to mean a lot of money and it was going to mean a lot of responsibility. But they finally accepted the fact, well, all right, if you believe the Lord wants a Bible school here, well, away you go. So after praying uh, for the Lord to provide government upon his shoulder, government upon your shoulder, Lord, it's all yours. I'm not going to touch it. If you want the school here, you're going to put it here. And we're not going to help you. Well, we had, I don't know much, money, maybe $4,000. So we bulldozed an area where we'd have put a dormitory. And I'd made inquiries as to what it would cost. It was going to cost $180,000. Well, it might as well have cost $180 million for all the money we had. But we bulldozed and we had enough to put a foundation in and a few blocks and 
a friend of mine in Florida called me and said, uh, whenever you want to come for a vacation, uh, I have uh, a place here you can stay and um, be glad to have you. So we were due to get away for a few weeks, so my wife and I went to Florida and met our friend, and he said, the boss uh, wants to have dinner with you. He said, I've told him about your ministry up there, and uh, I knew the boss, I, well, I knew of him, I didn't know him personally, and I knew he was a very, very wealthy man. So he met us at a restaurant, and a very, very shrewd man, he said, well, Mr. and Mrs. Carroll, I want to have dinner with the children, and you can have dinner with my friends. So he took my children to the furthest point of that restaurant. He had dinner with them. He was going to judge us by the children. He was going to judge us as professed servants of Jesus Christ by the children. Very shrewd man. So we went back to the place we were staying and we were due to leave. And my friend telephoned again. He said, now, the boss wants to have a part with you in the work up there. If you can come down and uh, hear something for you. So I went down and he handed me this long envelope and he said, now, here's some stock in my company and I, I don't want you to process it at, at the, all at once, uh, but uh, I'm glad to be able to have a share with you and your ministry up there. So we came home and I took the stock to a stockbroker and uh, he opened the envelope and he looked at it and he was shocked and when he told me what was in it, I was shocked. It was stock to the value of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So we had our dormitory. The Lord only does wondrous things. Well, our time is running out. What happens after you put the government on his shoulder and trust him to do a wonderful thing? Will you make him your counselor? Never mind about the psychiatrist or the psychologist or even the pastor for the moment. Just make him your counselor. Now, if he sends you to the pastor or the psychologist or the, uh, you name it, go. But don't go unless he sends you. I've made that a rule from the very earliest days of my Christian experience and I've been following the Lord 50 odd years. You have to come under his control. If you go to a psychiatrist or a doctor or even your pastor and he hasn't sent you, well, he's not, he doesn't have a word. He doesn't have a word through the pastor. Well, I'm to go to the pastor. You go to the pastor when the Lord sends you. If the Lord's going to send you to a psychiatrist, you go. But make sure he sends you. Why not come to the Lord first? When I arrived in the United States, this many years ago, over 40 years ago, I'd only been here ministering for about four months and I came to the conclusion, one of the things I'm going to have to preach against in this country, I'm going to preach against counseling. Counseling, everything, I've got a problem, let's go to the counselor. Why don't you go to the Lord? Why don't you go to the Lord? Put the government upon his shoulder. Let him order the circumstances. Send you where he will. He may not send you anywhere. He may, he may not. He must be Lord. If he's going to bring his will to pass in your life. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name should be called Wonderful Counselor. 
mighty God. And this speaks of his energy in battle. He's the mighty God in conflict. For you. How many stories could we take from the scripture concerning this? David, David, when he went out against Goliath, he was getting the name of the Lord. <laughs> he knew that the Lord would be for him and therefore he would be victorious. Scripture's full of it. He was trusting God to do an impossible thing. Here he was a little stripling, no armor, just a sling, a few stones, and here's a, a giant. And of course he was so farcical to the giant that he laughed. And when he laughed, the visa went back off the top of his head and in went the stone. The Lord did a wonderful thing. He made that giant laugh and he died. What's this little fellow coming against me? Where's his sword? Where's his armor? Who do you think he is? When he's coming in the name of the Lord, the Lord is telling him to do this. And he's going to be victorious. He was thinking victory all the way. So I want to say again that laughed, put his head, that giant put his head back and laughed and the visa went off his forehead and in went the stone and he's dead. The Lord only does wondrous things. When Moses was at the Red Sea, he had the Egyptians behind him and the sea in front of him. And the, the people were panicking. So what did he do? Well, he stopped the panic. And he said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And what did the Lord do? Well, he did something nobody would have expected him to do. You could have had uh, half a dozen committee meetings or board meetings of all the best brains that you could gather together. They never would have thought he was going to open up that sea. Never. And that's exactly what he did. He did a wonderful thing. How big is he to you? How big is your God? You don't need great faith. You need a great God. Just faith as a grain of mustard seed can move a mountain. Mustard seed. Move a mountain. That's the power of faith because it brings into action the God with whom all things are possible. And all things are possible. So what does it mean to live this life which we are called to day by day of relating everything to Jesus Christ and trusting the one who is faithful to respond to our faith? What does it mean? What will be our attitude as we walk with him? Well, the first thing, situation arises. It may be a physical problem, maybe a problem with a child, whatever it is. The government is on your shoulders, Lord. Do it before you begin to think about it. First thing to do is place the government upon his shoulder and then pray. And then obey him. What is to be your attitude? And this, this is a big one. Well, you're constantly telling the Lord he's going to do a wonderful thing. And therefore, you can't go around with a long face wondering what's going to happen if it doesn't work. God cannot fail. 
Now, he may respond in a way that you don't anticipate, but it's all working together for your good, because that's what he says in his word, and that is truth. And you accept that. Wonderful. But make him your counselor. And he will be to you the mighty God. He'll fight the battles. He's been fighting battles here for us for nearly 28 years. When I wrote the Constitution, I put in that Constitution, we will not take offerings, we will not incur debt, and we will not make needs known. And for all those years, he's always done wonderful things, always providing, always meeting our need, because that's his name. His name should be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. As far as his government extends in your heart, thus far will extend his peace.